episode of the new year. This is the In Development Podcast. My name is Allison. And my name is Lilith. And this is the podcast for all you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that care about driving change towards people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infill Development in Edmonton Association, a nonprofit education and advocacy group bringing together like-minded people working to shape our city. Today's guest is Raynan Sones. He's an urban planner with Clarity Development Advisory, uh, which is a consulting firm based here in Edmonton. Uh, Raynan is a planner, geographer, and master's graduate from the University of Alberta. He has a rigorous knowledge of planning, policy evaluation, and development, established through diverse experiences in urban research and analysis. He is passionate about placemaking, urban design, and sustainability transitions, and enjoys using systematic thinking to better visualize problems and offer solutions. He's been working at Clarity since 2019, where he works on a variety of projects, including complex rezoning applications, public engagement efforts, and larger land use planning proposals. In addition to planning work, Raynan has focused his efforts within the development industry, particularly as an advocate for better policies and processes that facilitate sustainable and efficient growth. So we had a pretty great conversation with Raynan on this episode. We uh, dwelled into the district plans that are currently um, under uh, development with the city of Edmonton. We got a a really good perspective from him, um, and his perspective is actually based off of his knowledge uh, that he acquired while doing his master's degree at the University of Alberta um, and with his thesis focusing on uh, small scale commercial uh, nodes. So uh, one thing that Allison and I wanted to note for our listeners is that uh, all three of us were actually recording in Oliver and downtown. So there's a lot of background urban noise that you might notice sometimes a bit higher, sometimes a bit lower, but uh, you know, that's where we live and we're proud of it. So uh, we decided to keep it all in. It's all part of the urban fabric. Exactly. Well, let's start the episode. Thanks for coming to the show today, Raynan. Uh, Allison and I are very excited to have you here today, learn a little bit more about you and talk about uh, district planning and all the latest and greatest with that. So Allison, I'll let you kick this off. Welcome to the show, Raynan. Super excited to chat with you. We wanted to start off and just kind of get a little bit more information about who you are and your background. I know that you were born and raised in Edmonton. Can you can you tell us a little bit about your history here in the city? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. And I, I grew up here. My, my parents came here just before I was born and um, from India. And Never really lived anywhere else. I grew up in uh, Grosvenor, a mature neighborhood that's actually seen a whole lot of infill development, and many of the listeners may know pretty intimately. And yeah, I, I did my university here as well. I did an undergrad and a master's degree in human geography, and have actually worked in the city and in urban development ever since. Okay, uh, so I know you did your master's degree at U of A, and it focused on the evolution of commercial areas in Edmonton. Can you tell us a little bit more about your research? Mm-hmm. I would love to. So after I finished my undergrad in human geography, I spent a little time doing 
research with Dr. Bob Summers at the U of A and uh, really started focusing on the idea of how do we create better local places? I mean, it's the question that all planners are always asking themselves. And what we really identified was this gap in Edmonton around how do we revitalize uh, specific local nodes and neighborhoods? And so this is very topical uh, to the conversation we're going to have today. But we were looking at kind of the historical development patterns within mature neighborhoods of Edmonton and thinking, well, we have um, the bones of really great kind of community focused uh, commercial nodes, but a lot of them have seen a lot of dilapidation or a lack of reinvestment through time. So what is holding those back? What are the challenges that are actually in our urban environment or in our policy environment that are not allowing for uh, these to really serve the purpose they were originally intended? So that that was really uh, what I focused on through my entire master's thesis, uh, the, the revitalization of kind of local commercial nodes and main streets in Edmonton, the challenges and the opportunities and got to talk to a lot of really great industry people, a lot of great people who, who own retail businesses and small commercial shops and business improvement areas and, and so on and so forth and, and really enjoyed my time doing that. It's a pretty great to always chat with another fellow University of Alberta graduate who also did human geography, just like me. But unlike you, I did my uh, bachelor's there and uh, was also a student of Bob Summers. Great to know you actually got to do your thesis focused in on Edmonton. So there was this local knowledge that you've, you've added and benefited the city that you know you grew up in. Uh, out of curiosity, are you still living in Grosvenor or did you move on to another uh, great urban utopian neighborhood? I actually live in Oliver now, so it's even more urban than uh, kind of our first or second ring suburbs. So I'm, I'm absolutely loving it. I think there's a lot of lessons that can be taken from a community like Oliver in terms of, uh, you know, just the access I have to, to my daily needs or even some more uh, discretionary needs, things that I, I want to do and places I want to go. I, I just love it. We actually both live in Oliver too. <laughs> so we're, we're, yeah, we, I love this neighborhood. I don't ever really want to leave unless I absolutely had to. It's, it's just such a great place to live. I think Lilith probably is the same. Okay. So uh, let's do a flashback. So you graduate from the University of Alberta. Um, I know you've been um, a professional for about six years now. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, your journey, your um, experience in the past and present? Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. I finished uh, my master's back in about 2018, I'm going to say. And, you know, I was, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I don't think I really had a clear picture of that. I, I had skills in planning, skills in engagement, um, and a lot of passion for urbanism. And just didn't really know where to take that. Uh, during my my master's, I, I had a great opportunity to to get to know lots of people in the industry, and I kind of kind of looked for that next next opportunity, something that I was passionate about, something that kind of fit uh, the areas of of expertise that I was starting to to build. And I got connected with Sparrow Capital, and they were really interesting. They're still around actually, but a, a really interesting 
company working on some heritage restoration projects um, on some of our, our fantastic buildings like the Gebbard Block and Brighton Block in Edmonton. And I thought, what a great opportunity to just kind of learn on the ground how this actually works, what the challenges uh, to actually achieving these types of things would be. And, you know, learned a lot, had a lot of opportunity to get to know um, the intricacies of the development process, as well as uh, some of the different challenges that come up when you're dealing with older buildings and older communities when it comes to services and, and so on and so forth. So I spent about a year working with with Sparrow and and really loved my time there. And and after that, I, I joined Clarity, uh, Clarity Development Advisory. And ever since I've I've been a planner for the last five or so years with, with Clarity. And again, working on lots of awesome urban uh, infill, mostly related projects and and doing rezonings and subdivisions and development management. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Um, when you were with Sparrow, uh, I'm curious, did you work on any uh, cool buildings that we might know of? The, the one that, that comes to mind most is the Gibbard Block. So that's that's down in the Highlands. Um, I think Situate, uh, Allison actually rezoned that back in the day for, uh, for Sparrow, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Sorry, which building is it? The Gibbard Block. So that would be in the Highlands on 112th Avenue. Uh, yeah, it's got Foxburger in there. and Yeah, I love Foxburger so much. It's such a great place. They have a great patio if you've never been on their rooftop patio. It's fantastic. But yes, I think you are right. That was before I started with Situate. Um, but I'm, I think that sounds correct that we did the rezoning for that. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't say I had a huge involvement myself in it. I was coming in kind of towards the ending stages, but but really got an opportunity to to learn some of those challenges that come up when you you tear off the walls of a historic building and, and try to figure out how, it, how the building needs to still stand. And maybe building practices were a little bit different back then. So it was it was really interesting. And also got to see uh, kind of the transformation of the basement. And I'm not sure if either of you have been in there. Uh, there was an old boiler that was running until, you know, 2016 or something like that. And they kind of kept it as part of the, the tenant space for uh, Fox Burger. And there's this cool little kind of rentable event space down there now that I'd highly recommend if you ever, you know, want to host a party or something like that. I didn't know that. Did you, did you know that, Lilith? Um, I didn't know you could have parties down there, but I th- I think last time I was at Foxburger, I went downstairs to use the washrooms, and they're great. If my memory serves me right, they're it, like as in the the inter- interior design of them is uh, wonderful. That's that's my impression of the building. <laughs> I love that. That's your key takeaway is the design <laughs> of the washrooms. Yeah, because the patios were closed. It was winter, so we couldn't go upstairs and use the patio and we went into fox burger smash burgers amazing um this is not a mm-hmm. paid advertisement uh by the way <laughs> but, uh, that's all i had to had a chance to check out you know uh are there washrooms yeah and i i mean I, it's, it's funny you say that but i um those types of businesses like fox burger are are some of the i guess opportunities that i think have 
such a great impact on an urban environment. So uh, the, the, the owner of, of Fox Burger has done some pretty amazing projects in Edmonton in the past, like uh, Little Brick down in Riverdale, uh, Elm Cafe used to be in Oliver, uh, District Cafe is still around. It, there, there's really this emphasis from some groups on saying, hey, we're in Edmonton, we wanna be here. We wanna, we wanna invest in our city and, and make it better yeah, maybe the returns aren't quite as good uh, for the, even for the landlord, you know, they could get a Tim Hortons in and just be pumping through the customers, but maybe there's a little more value than that. Things we can't always capture in, in financial numbers. I think that group has done an excellent job of creating like neighborhood gems. <clears throat> I moved to, when I first moved to Oliver, Elm Cafe was still open and I loved that place. It was so tiny. The people were great. You could just go in, grab a coffee, grab a snack. It was the perfect like little neighborhood cafe. And I was so sad um, when they closed, but it's like all of the places you mentioned, Little Brick, District, Foxburger. I love all of those places. And I think they're, if I were to think of like the communities that they're in, those are sort of the places that I would think about if I was saying like, oh, this is a coffee shop or a restaurant or, you know, whatever, a place you should visit if you're going to those neighborhoods. I actually wanted to add to this wonderful list of businesses you mentioned. I actually had my wedding last year just above Dogpatch in that um, uh, new building, new commercial uh, mixed-use building in Riverdale. They actually have Airbnb suites up um, on the second floor uh, and there's two of them and they're connected by a common shared balcony patio space. Um, so it's it's good to invest in local businesses. It's good to, um, you know, go to a place that is, you know, not the same as, you know, you can, you can go to any Tim Hortons anywhere in the world or McDonald's and it will all look the same. But our local businesses are unique. They're special. I think, and there's such an important piece of placemaking, right? And I think we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we get into our main discussion on district plans, but that's such an important piece of like the evolution of a neighborhood and like what makes a neighborhood unique, right? Are those places that, that people love to visit and will continue to go back to over and over and over again. Um, so before we jump into our conversation on district plans, we just, we have a couple more things to talk to you about related to your background. Um, can you talk to us about your involvement with Community Housing Canada? I've never heard of this organization before, so I wanted to hear more about it. I'd be happy to. Uh, Community Housing Canada is a, a, a research organization uh, funded through um, basically the Sustainable Housing Initiative and effectively I would call it federal dollars for, for research into community housing. So uh, Dr. Damien Collins of the U of A. Um, I'm not sure if either of you know him. Uh, he's been heavily involved in housing research for, for a long, long time. And uh, he's been tasked over, over a five-year period to, to help uh, not only do uh, sort of academic research, but help facilitate opportunity in the community housing world. And so when we're talking about community housing, it's it's effectively non-market housing typologies. So that could be co-op housing, um, things like that, where uh, you know it doesn't necessarily capture uh, what ninety percent of us you know rent or buy. It's something that might be a little bit under market or a shared uh, cooperative living 
arrangement and things like that, that the federal government has actually seen through the national housing strategy, a lot of value in. And so I've, I've been a little bit involved in that just in a, a smaller capacity, but uh, helping some re- uh, helping coordinate some research on uh, some of the challenges that uh, local uh, community housing providers are facing across Canada and trying to think about solutions. Rain and I think uh, Damien also shared the same resource with me a while back when I went to have a coffee with him over a, a flat white, which he pointed out is a New Zealand drink, uh, very proudly. <laughs> I, I, I would say that there's a big argument around whether that's Australian or New Zealand, and, and Damien always uh, pushes it as the, the New Zealand export. That, that's a very you know wonderful colorful colorful history of professional experience it seems like you've been involved in a lot of various things uh, you've you've completed so many different tasks you know from heritage design planning uh, to you know your your traditional land use planning etc and you know uh, involvement in housing um, affordability um, so with with that in mind, I'm thinking you've also been quite involved with uh, with IDEA, and uh, I wanted to get a little bit of a background on that, uh, your history with IDEA, and what you've been up to lately uh, with the organization. It'd be great to uh, get some thoughts from you. Yeah, I joined IDEA uh, around the time that I, I finished my master's, and uh, I had uh, Mariah Samji uh executive director at the time knocking on my door saying, hey, we want to start a commercial committee. We we really um, are starting to see the value of, of moving beyond, you know, at the time it was skinnies and duplexes and starting to think about other things that are also infill, other things that also contribute to, to building people-centered communities. And so I led a commercial committee, subcommittee for a couple of years and and started the conversation around how do we integrate this into ideas um, advocacy as well as all the other things we're already doing and then ever since have have also been just a, a contributing member of, of various committees and helping on policy research and advocacy and occasionally showing up at urban planning committee or council um, speaking some about some of the things that that we we think we should support or need need some changes and yeah just really passionate about the infill conversation and the redevelopment of our our awesome city and i think you were um also involved in um in the what is it called the uh, i don't know the name yeah I'm, I'm not even sure what the name is but i i know what you mean there's a committee started up focused on uh, underground disposal systems so when we're talking about you know more compact forms of development how do we ensure that the the basic uh things that we deal with in human living like trash and waste can be accommodated into that space a little bit better and yeah like one of them is underground disposal so we we see Molochs in a lot of commercial sites and uh, things like that. You guys may be familiar, maybe not, but how do we make this possible on residential sites as well in Edmonton? And there've there've been some challenges in that, and I think a lot of opportunity moving forward to 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 maybe uh, create something a little bit different than we've been doing. There's a little Easter egg for our listeners. We are going to have an upcoming episode on waste management. So, you know, stay tuned for further conversations on that in the future. (laughs) 
Let's get into the main part of our discussion. What we really wanted to chat with you about today is the district planning process. Um, So for our listeners, the city of Edmonton has been going through the district planning process for the past three years, I think it started in 2021. Um, and this really comes from city plan. So city plan lays out the framework for the districts. It established 15 districts, and then the district planning process distills down that next level of planning and provides the detail that the city plan provides more detail than city plan at the district level. So we kind of We've got lots lots of things that we want to talk about, but just wanted to get your perspective on what you think some of the lessons that we've learned in the past are from the other local area plans that we've had um, in the city of Edmonton historically. Well, first off, I'll say that uh, Edmonton City Plan, it's already been, I guess, we're in our fourth year of, of approval now that it's 2024, which is pretty crazy to think about. I feel like uh, we were just uh, at council talking about it last week, but I guess not. Yeah. Um, But I I think the city plan has laid such an important framework for how we, how we do things, laying out kind of the the general locations of nodes and corridors and, and saying, let's, let's build and rebuild a, a better city here. And in doing so, I think there's been a lot of conversation about how do we, I guess, reduce red tape. How do we make it easier for people to kind of get into the game and, and be a part of this world? One of the things that we um, have, have struggled with for years is older area development plans. So throughout the city, as a, as a planner, I mean, both of you may be well aware of this. You know, we have some some 1980s, 1970s plans still kicking around and you know, the world was a, a vastly different place at that point in time. Our, our city was so so different, our population, our growth, everything. And and yet, you know, we're, we're having to go in in 2023 or 2024 and, and make amendments to some of those plans to, to better match for individual sites what we think planning should, should basically allow. And I think what we learned is that a little bit more uh, adaptability is really, really important. Like people, people need certainty. Certainty is important, but also, I mean, we have um, a slew of of older plans in the city. Uh, most notably, the Oliver Area Redevelopment Plan, Central McDougal, and Queen Mary Park. And you know, these these certainly served a purpose in their time, and I think. Um, were were created through a whole lot of community engagement and political process and and everything else. But at the same time, what these plans have done, and I think everybody is well aware of who who kind of works in this sphere, is really restrict opportunity and and not um, necessarily be reflective of maybe emerging opportunities that are unexpected. And so when I think about district planning and future city building, I think, what are the opportunities that I haven't really considered? And how do we make sure that those are going to be possibilities into the future? I think that's the biggest lesson that we need to take away from some of our older plans when we we talk about kind of renewing all of this through our district planning process. It sounds like the way forward is, um, you know, at least in part, is to ensure that we remove the requirement to to have to amend these plans so much and create that flexibility moving forward. 
uh, that allows these plants to, uh, I guess, keep up as our goals change, um, our visions change, and uh, our priorities change. So that was great to hear. I'm curious in all your experience uh, and lessons learned in how we've been doing local area plans in the past. Have you ever had to, um, I guess, update a very outdated plan? And what hoops did you have to uh, jump through to get it done? Uh, I know in my experience, I've had to recreate digital maps from scratch because, you know, we're dealing with scanned old grainy copies of these maps. So just curious if you've had any experiences that uh, kind of jump out at you. Very similar to you, <clears throat> excuse me, very, very <laughs> similar to, to your experiences, um, recreating maps, trying to find creative ways to add on uh, notwithstanding type policy to clauses that, um, uh, you know, are hard to change as a whole because they apply to several hundred properties in some cases, but uh, really don't have uh, a strong relationship with the current approaches or, or things like that. Those have been really challenging for sure. And then occasionally from time to time, like having, you know, planners at the city, for example, feeling a little more strongly about maintaining certain things or the way that it should be amended can be a bit of negotiation from time to time. But I think what we have seen is over time a little more, you know, leniency, I would say, to allowing some of this change, understanding that, you know, 40-year-old plants are not necessarily what we should be, you know, holding to that hard. But uh, yeah, probably the same experiences that you've had. Yeah, I, it's similar to me as well. And I think one of the things that I've noticed um, in my with my experience of having to amend area redevelopment plans is that some of them are just so specific that it, it, it doesn't allow for any kind of flexibility, right? And then you end up amending multiple areas of the ARP to 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 just change one particular site, right? Whereas if we if we had local area plans that were a little bit more flexible, a little bit more adaptive, a, just a, a little bit had a little bit more freedom that still guides the general direction of what we want to see within that neighborhood or that particular area without creating like all of this additional red tape that ha we have to go through um, every time we want to propose a new development, right? I totally agree. You're, you're talking about those situations where it's, yeah, 12 separate areas of the plan need to be amended just to facilitate one slightly different development because it's cross-referenced across this entire bylaw and really, really challenging to have to deal with and, and probably not the way that we want to do things moving forward. No, and I think, you know, we when we think about the future planning and, and how we plan for neighborhoods and areas, it's like, how do we enable what we want to see rather than restrict what we're scared of, right? Um, and, you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier that certainty is an important part of this process. Community members want to have certainty. So I think there's a balance between how do we enable the types of developments that we want to see and that we need in order to achieve what we've identified as you know, our, our goals within city plan while also providing some of that certainty for community members who are living in those communities. Completely with you on that. The magic question that every planner is probably trying to answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a balancing act and, and planning always has been and, and always will, will be as long as it's uh, tied to kind of the political process and to 
kind of the public interest as planners that's something we always talk about what is in the public interest and and how do we how do we achieve that and it's really hard that's why we we get paid for what we do and we don't definitely achieve it a lot of the time but i i think what's the most important is that we do learn the lessons from from the past and say how do we avoid this moving forward like 40 years from now i don't want to be saying the same things about district plans that i'm saying about uh, you know the oliver arp today i want to say well we didn't get it exactly right but we we did solve some of the issues we did make it a little more flexible and create a little bit more opportunity to to achieve the things that we're trying to see Great, uh, great insights, Renan, on um, you know how we've been doing things up to this point. Uh, you know what the status quo was before. Uh, so I guess the overarching question right now is, as we uh, are in the process of preparing these district plans, is what are your thoughts on the actual process um, and the current drafts of the district plan? Are you seeing any differences from how things were done beforehand? Yeah, it's a it's a curious question, and I, I I don't know the entire answer. Obviously, I'm not on the district planning team and, and can't necessarily speak to, to how it's all handled internally. But what we have seen is a very different process than, uh, you know, the creation. I'll speak again about the Oliver ARP and the Central McDougal ARP, where currently we have district plans being created by a team at the city for the entire city. And so that's really, really interesting. We have, you know, local level decisions being made. And in the past, I would say that we we did things a little differently. Uh, the, the communities of Central McDougal and, and so on would uh, be heavily engaged uh, specifically on their plan for their smaller sort of area or neighborhood. And just kind of kind of different and I, I think it's a, a planning philosophy question how do we how do we match a higher level vision that we have in city plan with uh, getting the right amount of engagement to ensure that you know people's views and, and understanding of their local areas is is all part of the conversation and also you know moving things forward and not getting stuck in a quagmire of, of uh, decision making and, and process it's really really complicated. So it sounds like um, you've noticed that there's been some sort of a decentralization in the process uh, of creating these district plans. But do you think it's working? Do you think um, this is achieving what it's intended to achieve? I would say uh, in in places, yes, and probably in some places, no. I I think local communities always have the best understanding of their their own areas. That's number one. Uh, You know, as, as a planner myself, there's areas of the city that I, I can honestly say I know very little about. I may know generally where the roads go and, you know, where the school is and, and so on. But I may not really have a good uh, feel of the pulse of that community. Where do people spend their time? What are the local businesses that are really, you know, serving various functions within that community? I may not just have that all that well. And so I think uh, during this process of, I guess the, the word you used is decentralization of, of this particular planning process, how do we still integrate that understanding, I'm going to say, of local nodes? So that, that's something that's identified in city plan uh, as one of the types of nodes. And, you know, these are scattered throughout the city. And how do we ensure that we are 
finding exactly where they need to be. Should they be on our plans? Should communities have say in where those are? I don't know what your guys' thoughts are, but it'd be it'd be interesting to hear. No, I agree. And it's a very difficult thing to identify. You know, we're in a city of almost a million people to to have the team at the city be able to identify every single existing local node or an area that could potentially become a local node. That's a really difficult exercise to go through. I don't that's a ton of information and knowledge that you would have to sift through in order to identify that, right? And you know, as you were saying before, it's really the people in the community that know their community the best. Um, and you know, if that perspective is 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 missing in some way, then I think it, it's difficult to identify all of those nodes yeah. within an existing neighborhood. Completely, and at the same time, it's it's like what again? What is the right amount or type of engagement? Because sometimes engagement can can just lead to to nothing ever getting done. So how do we how do we engage people the right way to help facilitate again, like we were saying, the things that we want to see, while not being overly restrictive? And I think we we have a couple of quotes here from from Jane Jacobs, and I, I think you know the the preeminent urban scholar, I would call her, um, city diversity represents accident and chaos. That's absolutely what a city is. Like cities, the the great cities that you think of, New York cities or um, I don't know, like all, all sorts, Madrid or, or what, what have you, are always a little bit disorderly and a little bit chaotic and and don't always fit into the boxes that, that you want to place them in. But there's a reason that people also want to travel there and live there. And, and there are uh, livable components about, about these that we don't always have in kind of our standard um, North American cities that have kind of built out post-war and um, yeah, there's a lot of complexity, and and I, I think that's what we need to be thinking about facilitating and, and starting to integrate. And so maybe not being afraid of a little bit of chaos is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, human behavior is not predictable, and and it's a, how do you in, allow for that to happen, right? While still trying to create plans that achieve you know, what's intended in city plan and provide structure and things like that while still allowing for a little bit of that chaos. It's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult question. And like, how do you actually go about doing that? Right. I just also want to add that um, you're not a true urban planner until you've mentioned Jane Jacobs in your papers, (laughs) your presentations, or your podcast episodes. So I am proud you have made that milestone if you already haven't in the last six years, Raina. Box checked. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We're all good now. We're all official planners. (laughs) <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, it's it's great to hear your intake uh, on this. And if I understand you correctly, Rena, it's good to incorporate a mix of approaches, not just a bottom-up approach versus not just a top-down approach, and find that room in the middle for that flexibility to see. And there there are a million different ways that these district plans could have been written, and you know, uh, one way was chosen based on. Um, I guess, priorities, goals, and uh, probably timeline and budget uh, that we have to work with as a city. So I'm hoping to to see the result uh, coming up here soon and I'm looking forward to flipping through those pages uh, when I have to submit the next rezoning um, application. 
Uh, So currently right now in the district planning process, the most recent round of drafts were released back in August. And then the draft district plans went to urban planning committee in early December. And there was a a motion that came out of that meeting to make some changes uh, to the district plan. So part of that that motion was to remove the local node identifiers from the district plan maps as well as remove definitive node and cord ba- corridor boundaries um, from the from the district plan maps as well. And I think, you know, as we were just talking about local nodes, the difficulty with identifying every single local node or every every potential local node by removing those current identifiers, I think it'll allow for a little bit more organic development, um, especially those local nodes that maybe weren't identified in the district plan. Yeah, I I think so too. Um, I mean, I I never want to say it's a a perfect approach not to have it there either. At the same time, like I I can imagine that we we have some challenges in, in, you know, convincing people that something is a local node and and that, you know, a mid-rise building might be appropriate there. But I, I really do agree that, you know, the opportunity to um, facilitate future local nodes shouldn't be um, determined today. I think we need to, to say, you know, cities grow and change and, you know, suddenly something pops up, a cool business pops up and a, a community kind of revitalizes around that. And five years later, you really have a de facto local node. And do we have to, to go through the process of, of, amending maps and so on to, to be able to get, I guess, the development rights or the urban development rights that, that we need. I don't think so. I think, um, you know, a little bit of uh, heady urban planning analysis would, would get you the same way. And I think it gives administration some flexibility, right? When we think about the things that make up a local node. So it could be local business. It could be like some sort of civic space or a community center or, or you know, a school places of worship, all of those things are, you know, that's what district plan policy identifies as components of a local node. So as those things, whether they're already in place or they start to like new new businesses pop up, then it enables administration to to potentially identify that as a local node going forward without being restricted to a map that said, well, this isn't a local node, so it can't be. Right. Yeah. And I, I honestly like it's it's really hard to say what the exact right approach is. Maybe there isn't one, but I think allowing for some of that adaptability, whichever way you do it is is critical. I mean, we we have a couple projects on the go that that have kind of run into these same conversations recently. And, um, you know, we think they're they're awesome locations, but they weren't identified in the draft. So we're wondering how this is going to going to all play out. I, th- I think you had an interesting one recently too, Allison. Yeah. So Situate had a, a rezoning in Prince Rupert it, back in December. It came to public hearing um, and it's in the interior of the neighborhood between 100th and 11th, 111th Ave and Kingsway. Um, so it's about two blocks north of 111th Ave. So there was lots of discussion about is it in the primary corridor? Is it not in the primary corridor? Is it part of a local node? Um, and, you know, it was administration's opinion that it wasn't within that sort of transition area of, a, of the primary corridor or within a local node, um, whereas from our interpretation, it was. 
within the primary corridor, it made sense. The entire area surrounding it is an it was zoned RA7. We were trying to rezone to the RMH23, which is for our listeners, that's the former RA8 zone. So that al- allows basically a mid-rise residential building. Um, so there was lots of discussion around council and it's like, there's a little commercial strip just, just around the corner from the site. And, you know, there could be the perspective that it doesn't necessarily meet the criteria for a local node. It wasn't identified in as a local node in the draft district plan. But it's like, kind of a chicken or the egg. It's like, can you encourage the redevelopment, encourage a mid-rise building so that you're bringing population into that part of the neighborhood that would then support the local node? Because I think if you're only relying on the local node to develop and then bring people in, there's no people there to support the local node, right? So it's... Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll circle back to the earlier conversation on, on you know, fostering great commercial revitalization type projects and things like that in mature neighborhoods. And I can say with some assurance that it's really hard for a local business to make it work or a a smaller business in a community. Uh, Maybe they don't have uh, the traffic of a a Jasper Avenue or a White Avenue or something like that. They, you know, they need to integrate themselves into a community and know that that community has a substantial enough population to be able to, to support it. And that's a hard thing to do. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's where um, we we face this really challenging conundrum. Like we're we're talking about both wanting certainty and and not. So what what do we do, guys? <laughs> well, I have a I have a another great example of you know times when certainty might uh, uncertainty might not work. Uh, well for the clan or the developer or the landowner. Um, So we were working on a project a couple of years ago in the Edmonton metropolitan region. And um, similar thing, there was a node and it was a mixed use node with undefined boundaries. So the argument was between um, the landowner and the member of the uh, administration team is whether or not their property was in that node. And the challenge arose when, you know, the intent was to uh, rezone uh, the parcel uh, with the existing building and to convert it into residential uses. Now, because uh, administration was arguing that it was in a mixed use node, they wanted to push for commercial on the first floor for which um, the landowner did not have any funds. So there was, you know, that kind of threshold of time where there was this uncertainty and we didn't know whether or not the rezoning would get approved. So you never know. It's it's a bit of a gamble, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think so too. And our role is to negotiate this. And so how much do we need to negotiate versus how much should be set in stone is a really hard question. And yeah, I mean, I, I was saying earlier how you know, I, I really love a lot of the things that City Plan has done. Um, it's very non-specific in its boundaries. It, it says, okay, we have districts, and you know, there'll be future planning exercises for those districts. But it's allowed us to to really, as planners, say, here, let's let's make a great planning analysis for why this particular location actually works for something something that might need to be in a node or corridor. We've been able to do that numerous times in the last four years. And, you know, that's that's the, the conundrum. Are we going to be 
restrictive moving forward. If we have boundaries, if we have, you know, clear delineation of you're in or you're out, uh, is is it going to be that much harder to make the the argument to to make something included? Yeah, I think you know the edges of the corridor as being transition areas creates flexibility to determine on a site-by-site basis, does this make sense, right? And it also kind of brings to question, the corridors are not going to develop, and same with nodes, right in the middle. So or if you're thinking about a corridor, the main, whatever the main street or, or avenue that the corridor is, the redevelopment isn't necessarily going to happen there and then move out from there, so you know, sequentially. It's going to happen in random locations throughout the corridor. So it's it might seem, you know, if you have if you are proposing a development on the, in the transitional area of a corridor, and the main part of the corridor hasn't yet redeveloped, it might feel a little bit different than if that corridor had, if that main road had already been redeveloped. And now you're proposing something that does feel more transitional. But that's not the way that development works, right? <laughs> it's it's not going to happen at the middle of the corridor and move out. It's not going to happen that way. Because it depends on who owns the property and who who buys property and decides to redevelop and that those market forces that that come into play, right? Yeah, and the market forces are are probably the biggest thing. That's that's a, you're exactly right. It so much of this is driven by by dollars and mm-hmm. and you know how do we make a project work? How do we make sure that the purchase price of the the lot is um, something that we can can stomach and fit into our pro forma effectively? And sometimes those opportunities just don't exist in those exact locations on the corridor because they've been boosted in value Mm -hmm. because they're on the corridor. Or they're owned by people who don't want to sell those properties. Like there's so many factors that come into that. Um, And that's where I think like looking at the local context of a site is also really important because it's, you know, like what I was saying with the, the rezoning that I was talking about, the existing site has a low rise building on it right now and is completely surrounded by low rise residential. So a mid rise building, you know, if you were walking down the street, you're sort of like how you experience that you probably wouldn't really even notice that it's an additional two stories or three stories higher. Right. So it's like the context, the context of that specific site it makes sense. Like a mid-rise building would fit in contextually as well, in addition to, you know, alignment with the the policy direction for a primary corridor. Yeah. And, and just to, to circle back a little bit, Alison, um, it was a really interesting debate at council over uh, your Prince Rupert proposal where, you know, administration is saying that, no, it doesn't fit our policy framework to support this year. But then uh, council ultimately saying, well, is it not in the spirit of what we're we're trying to achieve and what are the impacts that are actually going to happen? Are we are we missing something here if we're getting too specific? Yeah, totally. And that those are the conversations that I think we'll be continuing to have as we see redevelopment within these nodes and corridors. Right. And thanks for bringing that up, Rainan, on uh, what happened with council. That was actually one of my questions is how did that council item end up going? What was the resolution there? It was approved, which is great. Congrats. (laughs) 
yeah, yeah and I, I would say that's a that's a rarity like it, it's only a handful of times that that council will approve something that administration says we don't recommend supporting this and i think it just sp- speaks to the wider issue of or like almost the the philosophical issue of how we do our nodes and corridors and and district planning and the the tensions that will continue to happen if we we don't foresee that need for adaptability moving forward. So then with that in mind, Raynan, um, are there any current projects you're working on right now that you can see uh, being impacted by these district plans? And how do you think that's going to affect you? Uh, I'm not sure if there's any case studies uh, you're willing to share on our podcast, but you're more than welcome to. Yeah, it's it's a good question. I, I do have a couple that I'm I'm not at liberty to share yet, unfortunately. That that would be that would be impacted for sure. But uh, both kind of being in in situations where I think it's pretty clear that these are local nodes that um, weren't ideally identified by by the process that uh, city administration had uh, used to identify local nodes in their previous version of of the plans that that went to UPC. So, uh, you know, having conversations with administrators and and hearing back from them that, oh, you're totally right. This 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 fits like this makes so much sense here and um, having to find our way around sort of draft draft policy, albeit, but but policy that's coming um, to to create those opportunities. So I, I think, you know, more than anything, I can say that um, as, as planners, as city builders, developers, really important to be having those conversations with the right people in administration right now so that they can kind of foresee those those challenges. Uh, you know, like we've said, this is an incredibly complex process. Things are going to get missed. Things are going to need to get amended for various reasons. But at the same time, if if the information from, from our perspectives in the industry aren't effectively heard uh, with actors within the administration who can affect things, um, it, it might be a while till we, we we see the improvements there. So a lot of great progress through uh, some of the the motions that happened at, at the UPC meeting, which is great, but I think still a long ways to go. I think every time we go through a planning exercise, whether that's writing a new zoning bylaw or writing a municipal development plan, which is what city plan is, creating district plans, there's always going to be a time frame after that where we have to make changes, right? Because you you write these documents based on the knowledge and your skill set and all of those things. But but then as you actually implement them, you have to make changes. They're living documents. That's that's going to be part of that process. So I think, you know, even as we that we move forward with district plans and they get adopted, it's there could be changes to those plans in the next however many years, right? As we as we see them implemented, then you identify what are the sticky points. And that's the same with our new zoning bylaw, right? So I think there's always going to be a period of of change over over that time frame. Thanks for the great conversation today, Raynan. We we're so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, we're really excited to talk to you about district plans and and hear your perspective. This is something that our the previous host Ryan and Olivia um, did is we and we Lilith and I have forgotten to do in the episodes that since we've started is a call to action. If there's anything that you want to share with listeners, any food for thought, key takeaway um, that you want to leave with them, we'd love to hear your call to action. Yeah, it's been so much fun chatting with you both. Thank, thanks so much for inviting me. 
uh, my call to action. I was just thinking about uh, circling back to something we were talking about at the beginning. And it, it's allow a little chaos into your city because it might actually be a good thing. That's it. I love that. <laughs> That's a great call to action. Can't control everything. Can't control it all. We don't really understand our cities that well. Our cities are complex beings and we can see things through our own perspectives. And, and sometimes our cities need to just uh, live and breathe. So let's allow them to. Perfect. Well, on, on that note, thanks uh, for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure chatting with you and getting your thoughts on a district plan. Uh, we wish you all the best in the future with all of your projects and all of the chaos and minor chaos and minor uncertainties. For sure. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Raynan. That was a really great episode. I had a really good time chatting with Raynan. He's so insightful and he's got a great perspective on the planning process and how cities evolve. It's a really, really engaging conversation with him. Uh, my biggest takeaway from this episode is how do we all live in the same neighborhood but never run into each other? <laughs> I know, especially because we walk most places, at least I do, and I know you do, and I'm I'm assuming he does as well, because uh, that's partly why a lot of people choose to live in this neighborhood. So I'll have to keep my eye out more for you too as I'm walking around. <laughs> yes, and we all go to the same like cafes and uh, coffee shops, so I'm I'm shocked we have not run into each other. <laughs> I know. How did uh, how did your holidays go? Uh, it was good. It was pretty low key. Um, I took some time off between Christmas and New Year's and went to visit my family. Uh, you know, it was pretty chill. Just kind of had Christmas dinner, watched a lot of movies, went for walks, read books. It was pretty, pretty relaxing. Of course, it was not long enough, but that's always the case. It never feels <laughs> like it's long enough. Um, but you went somewhere warm for Christmas, I hear. Well, kind of. So uh, we took a one-week trip to Sedona this uh, this Christmas. And when we landed in Phoenix, it was very warm, uh, t-shirt weather. And when we drove uh, north to Sedona, about hour and a half to two hours, um, it was, um, the elevation's higher, it's in a mountain. So it was actually the same weather as in Edmonton, I would uh, I would say. In the mornings, we were wearing coats. Um, like I never walked around there without at least three layers on. The sunrise, sunset times, uh, you know, earlier and later. So at least that's nice. Um, I got some really um, great urban uh, planning experiences and perspectives that I also wanted to share with you and the listeners because, you know, um, traveling to new places and learning uh, what you're doing well or better than other uh, cities or what you could be doing better in your own city. That's always good to know. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, as planners, can we ever go to a new city and not think about urban planning? I don't think it's possible. <laughs> no, I've documented things. I've taken photos. I've made notes, um, mental and written notes. Yeah, so um, I guess uh, as a highlight, Sedona to Arizona is like Banff to Alberta. It's a touristy town. It's in the mountains. Uh, and except that they, they don't have, you know, the, um, the ski slopes. They have, you know, a bunch of hiking and other things. I don't think they have skiing. They, they have it in some parts of Arizona, but not. The, the environment is quite confusing to someone from Alberta because um, it looks like a desert. There's red sand, there's uh, cacti, but it snows there. 
because of the super warm year, it didn't snow there um, this year, but there was still frost and ice uh, in some places. So it was very, very confusing to me and my family. Driving into, uh, you know, Main Street, Sedona, there are a ton of roundabouts. So if you're ever, you know, driving around your suburban neighborhoods in the Edmonton or Calgary region, and you're like, I just drove through seven roundabouts. Don't worry, other... <laughs> <laughs> Other countries do that too. <laughs> and um, Phoenix and Sedona are both quite car um, oriented. I don't think you can be a pedestrian in um, a lot of the neighborhoods there. Um, so, but but their roadways are really nice, very well maintained, very smooth. So I'll give them that. Yeah, I mean, they probably don't have the extreme temperature fluctuation that we do in Alberta that, you know, makes it difficult to maintain roads. <clears throat> Do they have any cool areas to walk around? Um, like, is there, are there main streets that you can walk down? You know, sort of like when you think of the main street in Banff, I'm just, that's kind of what I'm picturing, but. Well, it's actually exactly the same in Sedona as it is in Banff. So you have the main street, which is way wider and way longer than the one we have in Banff. It's like, I'm just pulling a number out here, but probably three times bigger than um, the one in Banff. Oh, okay. It actually takes a long time to get from um, start to finish. Um, and um, there is a, a mountain in the uh, viewpoint uh, as you walk towards the north, I think. Uh, I don't know what the name of the mountain is, but if you've ever gone to Banff and kind of stopped in the middle of an inter crosswalk to take a photo of that, whatever that mountain is in between. I also don't know the name of that mountain. <laughs> we probably should. I don't <laughs> So um, it's nice. Um, lots of trees. Um, and in Phoenix, also Scottsdale is the walkable neighborhood that you want to go to if you don't necessarily have a car. But couldn't believe the amount of um, sprawl that I saw leaving Phoenix going to Sedona. It was astonishing to me. Uh, so I'm curious to see what kind of um, smart growth or targeted growth principles they might have in a city. I, actually, this is going to be like um, when I have more time, uh, my research project. Yeah, to to look into the urban planning policies of Phoenix, Arizona. Well, it sounds like you had a really great trip. I'm I'm jealous that you got to go away on a little vacation. That's always nice to get away for the holidays. Yeah, and uh, I know you're going to be uh, busy coming up as well. There are a lot of um, ID events coming up that I know you'll be involved with at least some of them. So I'd love to hear uh, what you're up to. Yeah, so for our listeners, Idea Fest is coming up on January 25th. So this is an opportunity for um, dedicated volunteers and board members to come together and talk about the current work they're doing that's tied to the organization that's various activities and initiatives. So this is open to Idea members and anyone that's a member that's looking to join a working group or committee to volunteer. So all the information for that event is on Ideas website and social media. So check that out um, to register. All right. So to wrap up the episode, just want to tell you where you can find us. So you can find Idea at infilledmonton.com and Instagram and Twitter at infilledmonton and on Facebook at infilledyeg. The podcast episodes are on the Idea website, or you can subscribe to In Development wherever you get your podcasts. And a new thing that we have, we've created a dedicated podcast email. So if you have ideas for topics you'd like to hear about or guests, send us your thoughts at podcast at infilledmonton.com. 
Thanks for listening. My name is Allison. And my name is Lilith. And uh, tune in for the next episode. Mm-hmm.